Welcome to this podcast from the Religion Media Center, the only podcast to sit firmly in the space where religion and the media collide. We aim to ease that relationship, strengthen links that already exist, and help build new ones through chat, reflection, and comment. Thanks for listening. Welcome to today's Religion Media Centre briefing, where we're looking at the new media bill, which is currently going through Parliament. The government says it will unleash the power of British broadcasters to attract bigger audiences in the UK and abroad, and it will give public service broadcasters power for more flexible programming. But it's what the bill leaves out that has raised fears about the future of religious broadcasting. And uh, we're joined on the call today to discuss all of this with Bishop Nick Baines, the Bishop of Leeds and lead bishop on the media in the House of Lords. Roger Bolton, journalist and broadcaster. Professor Kim Knott, author of Media Portrayals of Religion and the Secular Sacred. Gareth Barr, the Director of Policy and Regulation at ITV. Mark Friend, the author of BBC Religion and Ethics Review in 2017, and David Strachan, a trustee of Sanford St. Martin Trust. So thank you all for joining. Should we start with you, Gareth, if we may? Just to establish the facts about the new media bill, um, could you just explain to us what the Communications Act at the moment sets out? and what the media bill proposes as uh, the major change, please. Absolutely, and uh, good morning, everybody. Thanks to uh, the Religion Media Centre for, for hosting today and inviting me to speak. Um, uh, obviously, I'm speaking, as you as you mentioned, in my role at, at ITV currently, um, but I was at Ofcom for six years before this and the BBC for six years before that, so hopefully I can bring some of that background to, to, to bear too. Um, look, it, it's absolutely right, as some people observe, that uh, the the media bill as drafted is proposing to remove the very extensive list of public service purposes and characteristics that are currently included within the Communications Act. Um, I think one thing that uh, in discussions I've had with people on this uh, seems to have been missed is that, that those expectations were always of the system taken as a whole. Uh, they were things that Ofcom were meant to review within its PSB reviews uh, once every five years or so, um, but they were never individual expectations of each of the PSB broadcasters individually. Um, and I think that matters because each PSB has always done different things within that overall remit for the system. Um, it's why ITV spends tens of millions of pounds a year on regional news, which none of the other commercial PSBs do at all. It's one of our unique contributions to the system. Uh, Channel 4 and Channel 5 would tell you that they do different things to us, and that, that whole system is supposed to deliver those things. So it's true that the system will have a simplified remit, that is absolutely right, uh, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a different role for any of the individual PSBs within that system. Uh, also true, it gives Ofcom quite a lot of flex as to, to what that system is meant to do. Just and throwing back, back a bit though, uh, Gareth, so PSBs, public service broadcasters, just name them for us please so we know what we're talking about. Yeah, sure. So, and um, who am I going to leave out? So you have um, a whole range of different operators. You've got the publicly owned and publicly funded BBC. You've got the publicly owned, commercially funded Channel 4. You've got commercially owned, commercially funded ITV, STV and Channel 5. Uh, and you've got 
publicly owned, publicly funded S4C. Uh, and MG Albert, I think, will will also say they are they they do more than broadcasting. They also help operate uh, the BBC, some of the BBC Scottish services. And just to be also clear, um, in the Communications Act as it stands and in the proposed media bill, there's there's no actual quota set out about the proportion of programmes that have to be about religious broadcasting. That often creeps into stories, but just to make it clear. No, so there are almost no quotas at all in the current um, the current system. Uh, that they are around news, current affairs, and then some of the big production quotas about original content, uh, out of London content, content made by independent producers. But the the sort of the old system of quotas applying to science or history or religion or any of those sorts of programs uh, were removed. I mean, I think well over a decade ago. So in the new bill, which um, says that uh, there should just be made available a broad range of audiovisual content, uh, can you explain the role of Ofcom in policing uh, what is set out in the, in the bills? Yes, yeah, so, and I can have a go. I, I don't know how Ofcom will approach this. One of the interesting things about the bill is how much discretion it gives to Ofcom across a number of fronts. So I think it's got a job early to set its stall out and explain how it, it sees its role in that, in that world. Um, in practical terms, I'm not sure how differently Ofcom will view it. So it already collects a staggering amount of data on um, the types of programming being broadcast. It carries out its periodic reviews, which it'll keep doing, where it sets out how it sees provision, uh, where it sees strengths and weaknesses in the market. And I think it'll keep doing that. Uh, it has been given an additional power, which it doesn't have at the moment under the bill, uh, to set quotas in areas uh, or recommend the government impose quotas in areas where it's worried about provision. So that's an extra an extra lever it doesn't currently have. So it could set quotas for religious broadcasting. Uh yeah, and and you I'm not gonna <laughs> try and try and quote how that would work, but there's a process that's out in the bill that explains what it would have to do to to go through that that sort of thinking. Um, but yes, it has uh, you know powers to invoke quotas in a whole range of fronts. So this it would be in an at-risk category, which would include science and arts programming, children's as well, all those categories it could review. And if if audiences were undeserved, uh, underserved, then it could uh, create quotas. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And, and, and I think the challenge for Ofcom will be how it pays for those obligations. And that's the bit that I think is much less talked about um, uh, because it, I think a lot of these things are not new issues. I, I, I wrote Ofcom's third PSB review and remember citing religion as one of the at-risk genres that policymakers need to address. Uh, and actually that willingness to address the mechanics of how you do this is quite difficult uh, because it's not obvious who you impose those obligations on and how that output is paid for. Um, and each of the PSBs is facing uh, its own particular set of challenges, but it, it has been a story of decline. Uh, and you know, we we are worried that it's investment in UK content, full stop, that is increasingly under pressure in a, in, a, in a global market, let alone specific types of that content. So just to bring you back to your day job at the moment with ITV, um, in one of the, uh, as you say, extensive pieces of research that Ofcom has done, it lists the hours of output for re uh, religious broadcasting from each public service broadcaster. And this is where you get these startling statistics. If you compare figures from 2010 to today, that says that the uh, number of hours of programmes of religion and ethics on all public service broadcasting platforms fell by 42% in that time frame from 2010. And the number of originally uh, produced UK 
produce content at peak time dropped by 85%, which is startling. And within that framework, um, ITV uh, seemed to come out of this quite badly and that they went from, uh, what was it before, 46 hours to one. Can you just tell us what's happened in those uh, in that last decade or so to have forced such a rapid decline? Yeah, ab absolutely. So one of the things that is notable about British broadcast policy has been has always been about encouraging competition to the PSBs. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, whether it's the launch of ITV to compete with the BBC, then Channel 4 launching alongside a remit to grow an independent production sector, then Channel 5, support for cable companies. At every step, the government has chosen to increase competition. And so that has uh, eroded the value of the things that the state used to provide to public service broadcasters to support the delivery of certain types of content. Uh, so the value of being a broadcaster on terrestrial television is much less than it was because far fewer people watch on terrestrial television. Uh, so there, there is a, a, a sort of pro, a policy of increasing competition which makes broadcasting more efficient, but erodes the surplus, competes away the surplus that funds those sorts of programming. And the other thing that's happened is the broadcasters and the UK market itself is now competing globally. So we're now competing with Disney and Netflix, big global companies with big deep pockets. Um, and uh, all UK broadcasters, not just the PSBs, have really been trying very hard to compete in a world that is hyper competitive. We're now sort of competing for viewer attention with all TV ever made. Um, and for consumers in the main, that extraordinary range and choices is amazing. Uh, but the combination of a global content market, global distributors like Amazon and Google controlling what UK viewers find and see and, and the terms on which we, we are included, along with that pro-competition policy from UK government, leaves a system that's pretty lean uh, and is very, very focused on those remaining shows that can cut through at scale and can bring funding from a whole range of sources. Thank you. And thank you for going first and explaining it all so clearly as well, uh, Gareth. Can we move on to the BBC now? Uh, um, we don't have a spokesperson from the BBC, but we do have an explanatory statement and we are joined um, by Mark Friend. And Mark, you were at the BBC for many years and you wrote the Religion and Ethics Review in 2017. So let me just read you what the, the BBC has said. The changes set out in the media bill don't directly apply to the BBC. They are for the other PSBs and would not affect our commitment to religious programming. Our obligations and remit are set out separately in our charter, framework agreement and operating licence. I wonder if you could explain to us, how does it work within the BBC? How do they set their own targets and what are their obligations? Well, I think Gareth set out a lot of the obligations there, actually. So, I mean, there's a charter agreed with government every 10 years. That The last one in 2017 said, well, Ofcom's going to set set the rules around this and, and, and regulate. And I think much as Gareth said, and as you said, Ruth, um, there's a, a, a sort of broad statement about a broad range of output, including religion, as with some other genres named. Um, I left the BBC in 2019, so I'm definitely not speaking on behalf of the BBC, but the review that I had the, the privilege to lead and actually spoke to many of you on this call, um, and we did a lot of audience research around it. So what does the audience expect of the BBC? And what do the, what I'd say, stakeholders around the country 
um, want to see. And that's what fed into the review. And I would say the way that religion is looked at across the BBC is really dispersed across its main outlets. So I think there is a question in there about radio. You know, radio, TV and journalism, essentially, um, and online kind of running across all of those, will consider religion um, as part of its mix. And so Radio 2 definitely considers religion part of its mix, Radio 4, you know, and and that is planned. So the obligation doesn't name ours, as Gareth said. Um, there is an obligation on the BBC to publish a plan every year for what it's going to do and then report on that in the annual reports. You can see all that in the plan. It's really clear. And you'll see a degree of consistency over the years in terms of hours. It varies a little bit as to how much detail there is about exactly what will go into that. Um, and it's there for radio as well. So as I can't see anything in what's coming that says there's a change directly from the media bill in the obligation, because there isn't. The obligation is pretty vague. At the heart of the review was um, essentially, in terms of what the audience expects, is are we uh, sort of trying to delight a core audience that wants to consume very clearly categorized sort of religion and ethics type output, or are we trying to reach a broader audience to sort of increase understanding around issues and other people's perspectives? And of course, BBC is trying to do both, um, but it's that kind of balance. Where does it sit in the radio TV schedules? How much is there on radio TV compared to online? And I don't think there's a clear obligation on the BBC, and it's very much down to judgment within. Their statement makes it clear they account. The BBC accounts for 99% of all religious programming on public service broadcasters. And in its latest annual plan, it sets out that it will deliver 500 hours of religious programming on network radio and 200 hours of religious programming across all TV channels. Um, I wonder if I could bring in David Strachan at this point from Sanford St. Martin. Um, because your trust gives awards for great religious programming. What are we actually talking about here? Um, Mark, uh, re refer to, you know, there's no obligation, but it's still produced. What is the excellent religious broadcasting that's on the air at the moment? That's an interesting question. And he's quite right in saying that uh, there is religion for the core audience, but there's also religion for those who we hope uh, may take an interest in it uh, who might not have defined themselves as the kind of people who would do that. And quite often I think the problem with broadcasters is that they think that religious broadcasting is just uh, religion for the core audience, which is some kind of a um, an unintelligent minority that still believes in old-fashioned stuff. I remember one, uh, one head of Factual in the BBC telling me that uh, she thought that science would have all the answers one day and why didn't I go off and make a film about what's the point of religion um, the kind of great stuff that I think we've seen in Sanford St Martin in recent years um, for example is a fabulous film um, by uh, Nick Hammer uh, called Brotherhood which was uh, subtitled The Inner Life of Monks which I, I was lucky enough to be on the judging panel of Sanford I probably wouldn't have seen it otherwise and it's so good that I, I went and bought the DVD in order that I could watch it again and again and again it, it really got under the skin of 
of the, the the humanity as well as the spirituality of these uh, chaps who were and there was humor in it too because you know you think of monks in a monastery as as uh, making honey or or growing plants in order to sustain themselves uh, they were uh, building a brewery in order to 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 generate income for the monastery um on on radio for instance we we gave an, an award to a program which uh examined the relationship between putin and the russian orthodox church and i should mention also the fact that that, that sanford is there trying to encourage people to make decent religious programming in that wider sphere um attracted a uh, a film called Help, um, which was uh, with with Jodie Comer as a care home assistant. It was a drama, um, and and it highlighted the the issues of what was happening in care homes long before we all learned about them now. So there are there are issues which which affect us affect us in, in the wider world. Uh, you've got a statement from our. Uh, draft in draft at the moment um response to the media bill um uh, we have said in that um widespread assumptions about religion and religious communities based on partial knowledge or stereotypes fuel prejudice and bigotry there's a lot of that about i think we need to do things to defend ourselves from it so what's your major fear about the media bill going through then at the moment i, I think if you if you give broadcasters general instructions as to what they should do. My, my experience of dealing with broadcasters over the years has been mostly with campaigning to get more production outside of London. When we started campaigning, 95% of all production on public service broadcasting happened within the M25. Um, and this was considered to be a perfectly reasonable thing. I mean, I remember going to House of Commons committees and being told this is the British Broadcasting Corporation, not the British Regional Broadcasting Corporation. I mean, really. Um, uh, if if you don't specify what needs to be done, and you just make an assumption that uh, you know people will be good chaps and will will know what needs to be done, I think they won't do it. So I think you need to spell it out. You need stick as well as carrot. Thank you. Can I go straight away then to the Bishop of Leeds, uh, Nick Baines, um, Bishop? You lead on media issues. Um, in in the Lords, do you share that view we've just heard from Sanford St Martin Trust that unless you specify that religion has to be covered, then it won't be covered? Is that your fear about the media bill? Well, I'm interested that you keep using the word fear. I mean, there are other motivations for looking at the bill, and um, I think there are some very good things in the bill, which clearly have been welcomed by. Um, many of the public service broadcasters. I think there's one specific issue with it, um, which is what in the Lords, when we actually see what comes to the Lords, and we still don't know. We don't, you, you know, I do think we've got to wait until we see what is on the table. Sorry to cut in, but just to clarify, it's the bill is going for its final uh, stage through yeah. the commas at the end of this month. Yeah. And then it will go to you probably in mid-February, just to make that clear for everyone else. But, yeah. But I still think that um, sometimes preemptive campaigning before we see what is going to land on our desk. For example, I can't start um, putting down amendments till I see what the text actually says. Now, let me just return to the point. Um, I sit on the Communications and Digital 
select committee of the House of Lords, we meet this afternoon. Um, and we had Lucy Fraser, the minister, in. And I pushed her on precisely this issue about if um, the uh, the buzzword now uh, in the media bill is about flexibility and granting flexibility to the broadcasters uh, or the media entities. Um, how do you measure whether that flexibility is or how that flexibility is being exercised? So if you don't have quotas, if you don't have some metrics for measuring um, where, what priority is given to which elements of broadcasting, how do you know that that flexibility is being affected, affected or being effective? So um, I put this to Lucy Fraser and she ducked it, really. And in the end, had to say, because I kept pressing the issue, you can, you, it's all on the record, um, that they haven't really thought about what the metrics would be. So flexibility is the, the big buzzword. I understand that rationally. But if you don't have some metrics, then you can't judge whether you're doing the job or not. Now, I come back to what I've been saying for the last 30 years. Um, religious broadcasting, and you're right, Ruth, at the beginning when you um, set uh, religious broadcasting within the context of wider minority issues, like the arts, humanities, science, children, uh, and so on, um, that you don't have to believe stuff. There is, I think, was it Mark or, or someone who said there is a problem um, within some of our um, uh, agencies that they have a stereotype of what religion is about or that religious broadcasting is some sort of propaganda or proselytizing. You cannot understand the world if you don't understand religion and uh, as a phenomenon. And we have an ongoing problem with religious illiteracy, in that, not just in the media. Um, but if we're going to say, well, religion is uh, an important part of what it is to be human or to understand how humanity, how societies, how cultures uh, behave, uh, what motivates them, then you have to some, have some way of guaranteeing that there will be a proportion or some priority given. And you have to have some metrics for that. And a, a Secretary of State simply saying, well, we don't have any metrics or we don't want any metrics, we want flexibility, I don't think it's adequate because then you can't measure how that flexibility is exercised. Is there an issue here about how Ofcom categorises what is a programme, a religious programme, and that religion peppers the output through news and current affairs, you know, it crops up in soap operas, there's a lot of religion on the air actually that may not be counted how do you uh, how do you respond to uh, the, the argument that perhaps metrics might not be the the um, sufficient a way of judging whether religion is uh, reflected well in all broadcasting platforms well the question I put to the Secretary of State was um, you know what it you could argue, as in the past, that you have a certain number of hours that, you, that a company has to guarantee, say the BBC has to guarantee, uh, is going to um, uh, reflect religion. Um, you could have percentages, but you've got to have something. Um, and I just don't think at the moment 
that there is sufficient clarity, and that's what we need to flush out um, when we actually get the bill onto the into the House of Lords. Um, I'd, but I do understand rationally the there is an argument for flexibility and for I could argue it myself about having more freedom across the spectrum of news, uh, you know, entertainment, everything else. But um, they've got to define it somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the other thing is, see, people often talk about religion as if it was creedal. It isn't. It's to do with how communities live. It's about ritual. It's about ways of seeing and understanding human beings, the world, ethics, the main drivers for our collective and individual behaviour. And you're right, that's going to come out in a, in a number of ways. But, for example, even though when I was chairing Sanderson Martin, we gave um, awards to people like Lise Doucette, you know, great um, explainers of what is going on in the world and why and how, then um, in one sense, I would discount that and put that in the, you know, the news box, as it were. It's the rest of it that has to be quantified in some way. Will you be raising with Lucy Fraser the cuts to BBC local radio religion shows on uh, Sunday mornings, which have been reduced from 39 to 13 and are now no longer explicitly local but regional instead. There was a time when, um, I think it was 2017, the BBC proudly said we do 7,000 hours of religious programming a year and 5,000 of those were on local radio. And now that's that's all gone. And the number of hours in the 23-4 plan is 700 altogether across radio and TV. So it's made an enormous dent in what the BBC can proudly say is religious broadcasting. How concerned are you about the local radio cuts? Well, I am concerned about it. um, And we've we've made representations to that effect. But I'm afraid we've got to offer solutions. I mean, the BBC is under the cosh in many ways, particularly financially. If we don't like the way they're responding to that, we have to offer solutions, not just say that isn't adequate. You know, I'm, I, I've worked with local radio uh, for decades, um, so I need no convincing that um, the local is where the human uh, really finds its voice. Um, but at the moment... Uh, that argument is not being won, particularly with the BBC, and um, I hope it'll carry on. But we've got to offer other options if we're going to say you've got to preserve uh, local radio. There are big arguments about digitalisation. I mean, on the committee, um, Communications and Digital Committee, we did produce a report on digital exclusion. And uh, we've just completed one on AI and large language models. But on digital exclusion, the point we kept emphasising is that there is going to be a section of the population who do not go digital. And we've got to maintain the uh, the output to serve them in, in public service broadcasting. But again, the question is, if, um, if the majority of people in the country, for example, are going digital and everything now is um, being digitally um, produced, then... Um, how do we encourage the, uh, the powers that be to make cuts elsewhere when they're losing money rather than here? And I don't hear us doing that. I hear us complaining about where they are cutting. 
Um, and, and I agree with much of that, but we've got to be able to offer other solutions. So who takes responsibility for that then, for coming coming up with some kind of review to say, uh, reinstate religious programming on local radio at the expense of something else? Who's doing that work at the moment? Is anyone doing that work? I think lots of agencies are doing it. I mean, um, you know, I think there's that argument going on within the BBC. Um, we're doing it, you know, in our various guises through the House of Lords. The media bishops which isn't really functioning at the moment needs needs to be doing it better agencies like sanderson martin and so on have a have a voice in that as well but it's going to be a, um, a variety of voices pitching into that there is no single route thank you thank you very much bishop can i uh, go now to roger bolton um a uh, journalist, broadcaster and uh, campaigner, I think it would be right to say, on various issues connected with broadcasting now. Uh, uh, the bishop was just saying that unless you have some yardstick to judge uh, the hours of programming by, um, you, you won't achieve your targets. Do you agree with the bishop? Referring to your question, um, under this new bill, there is no requirement for Ofcom to measure what broadcasters do. There's no requirement on Ofcom to report. So not only will we not know what is being done, we won't know um, what Ofcom thinks of it. At the moment, if you look at their latest uh, statistics, which have been referred to, and by the way, we're talking about religious programming. Actually, the program is called Religion and Ethics. And when we deal with that, you've mentioned the dramatic decline, but you've also not mentioned that in Channel 4 specifically, uh, they do nothing in peak. From being 10 years ago, the, um, the organization that did some brilliant program, actually most in peak, it does nothing. Now, the bishop raised the question, what do we do about this? Um, well, first of all, we can, uh, we can ask the big question about what public service broadcasting is or public service media is. What do we require from public service media? And I think we need, and I would hope the, that the parliament would do this, would initiate an inquiry into what it is, because it's elusive. And until we have a proper definition about that and what we mean it to be, I don't think we can move forward. We've got the BBC Charter Review coming up, um, or, uh, which over the next two to three years. But that believes is a situation where we are almost entirely dependent only on the BBC for this sort of programming. And uh, the BBC does not have a single head of religion and broadcasting, somebody who is responsible for strategy. There's no one person you can go to and say, well, look, well, all these things are happening in Muslim communities and other things. How do you think you should be dealing with this? We're not telling you, the BBC, what programs to make. We are saying these are important areas of public life a public service broadcast should, should be responding in some way. Uh, we don't have anybody in the BBC to do that. We only have their general undertakings. And as the BBC under pressure, you know, lost 30%, the licence fee has lost 30% of its value in uh, more than that in 10 years. The BBC is making cuts, but it's making cuts. And I have great sympathy for it. And it's very efficient, actually, as an organisation, without any wider public debate. And it's preparing itself for a future, which may be well without the be without the license fee. So the BBC is moving towards a business model of an international big business that will survive in the future, which is fine and what it should be doing in one way. But what that ceases or is dangerous stopping it being is it primarily a public service organisation. Elsewhere, okay, you can make specific cases for Channel 4, it's had problems with advertising and so on. But you've got a, a retreat generally in the broadcasters, a focusing on a business future, and no 
specific people, and certainly in the BBC, talking about religion, ethics, and what public service is. So we've had this dramatic decline. Just to reinforce the other thing the bishop was saying, which was about this digital divide, and indeed the House of Lords published um, uh, this extraordinary uh, document, which I do recommend, Digital Exclusion, published in June 23, which says 7 million households have no broadband or mobile access. That is a quarter of all UK households. And the report also criticised the government for the absence of real strategy on tackling the digital divide. So yeah. another part of the bill, which is crucial, is it's giving greater flexibility for broadcasters, including the BBC, to move their programming from terrestrial to digital. This, in terms of the BBC, will mean, if they go ahead with it, and they how is going to stop them? Significant amounts of programming will be inaccessible to the poor off. There's some dispute about that figure, though, Roger. I think it's 1.7 million rather than 7 million. But there have been so many, I, so many uh, organisations that have done research. But anyway, the point the point is the same. It excludes some people from from online outputs. The poorest, the poorest, and the elderly amongst them. What do you feel uh, or what do you believe will happen uh, then if broadcasters don't create religious programming that brings in large audiences, which is what this bill is meant to achieve? Will there be, what do you think will happen? Will there be no religious broadcasting? Will there be religious programmes that go online only? What do you think will happen? Well, I mean, we can see that uh, the atomization of society and, and uh, you know, echo chambers happening and individual groups and will set up their own narrow form of communication, but it's not broadcasting. I think the question for us is, largely, is if we want people to understand this country, you have to understand the real Christianity is played in it. If you want to understand, for example, the Muslim communities in this country and minimize the possibilities of conflict between them. You need to understand them. And broadcasters need to have a broad responsibility for helping the country understand itself at a time when the industry is fragmenting and we're all in echo chambers. Now, that's public service, I would say, is, is about that. And public service is also about making sure that nearly everybody possible can have access to these programming. Now, the way in which we do it is very difficult, but it's not just in this bill. We're not just talking about the absence of religion and ethics. Uh, children's has been put back in, the, in, the, in the, the bill for the moment. But we're talking about science, arts, engineering. So, uh, you know, the, the broadcasts are under intense pressure, which have sympathy to them. But we're about to move into a situation where they're going to be much greater freedom to pursue their business objectives. Ofcom is taking a hands-off approach, won't measure what they're doing in crucial areas. And it's as if we are saying collectively, we don't now regard, now regard broadcasting as being something about education as well as informing, as well as entertaining. That's the real sort of worry that I have. And by the way, we can see, contrary to what the bishop suggests, we can see now in the bill in draft in the Commons where it's going. So we've got advance warning about what we need to do. And then there'll be a very quick very quick uh, process, I think, in the Lords. And I think we need to do two things crucially. One is get religion mentioned there as an obligation. And two, get as an obligation Ofcom to report on what's happening so we know what's happening. And the final thing, what we've got to do, there's a real problem with commissioning. The people who tend, tend now to commission programmes tend to be in a sort of group think. They tend to be liberal. They tend to be secular. I was indeed one of them. And it means that they, the danger is that they don't appreciate the potential of religious programming. This is why I was on Sanford for a long time and why I was just dazzled by a lot of the programming, because 
you know, you have a, an idea of religious broadcasting, but it's relatively narrow. It's about all human experience. And some of the, and as you're an independent producer, and I was one for 20 years, you can only make what is commissioned. And if the commissioning editors don't have the vision to see the potential, you will make them. I'll go and do something about the Second World War or the Tudors. I mean, so we have a problem with commissioning editors. If we don't specify to it what we should be doing and what the public service broadcasters should still be doing, I think this will, the, the dismal statistics that we've seen. Uh, you know, and which are there in Ofcon, which will not be highlighted by many people, will continue. And if the BBC doesn't have a head of religion and ethics to set a strategy, to it'll continue. The warning signals are red. I'm going to bring Gareth Barr in here just to respond to that, please, Gareth. Indeed, goodness, this is a lot to respond to. I'll try and keep this pithy. Um, look, let, let me start by being more optimistic than, than perhaps we have been so far, which is all of the the aims and goals of religious broadcasting in its broadest sense, as people on this panel have described it. I think we do far more of that than the the, the, the sort of genre quota figures tell you. Uh, so whether that's key characters not eating in soaps during Ramadan or the portrayal in Emmerdale of a, a Hindu burial ceremony, whether that's having uh, Justin Welbury's criticism of immigration policy or an exploration on uh, our Loose Women, one of our daytime programmes, about uh, the role of religious institutions in, in, in national politics. I think throughout ITV's output, that though that very human aspect of religion in a broad sense is absolutely part of uh, the programming we put out. N none of that is returned as religious programming. Um, uh, and you, you'd say the same about our coverage of science or the arts. It's it's embedded within a broad range of output, fully from fully focused on religion as a topic all the way through to religion as part of everyday life. So I think, I think we genuinely do far more of that. That is perilously difficult to measure. Uh, and if you're not watching all of the output all of the day, you're clearly your your experience of that depends on what what you saw at any given moment. Um, I uh, and maybe it's because I've been doing this for far too long. I have no worries that Ofcom are not going to collect every single data point they can possibly get their hands on. They have a voracious appetite for data that seems undimmed, uh, and I think they will measure this. I think there is a difference between measurement and reporting and discussion of this sort of stuff and audience research versus a quota requirement that requires a sort of zone and an allocation of time. Um, the one thing I would say on quotas is I think they work at their best when they are requiring structural change at scale. So I can see that out of London production was mentioned earlier. The quotas are so big, they force you to be structurally outside of London in a way that none of the rest of the media industry chooses to be because London is a global hub. That, that that works to a degree and has mushed, pushed money out of London. Um, interestingly, and I promise I'll only mention it once, uh, the brilliant misdebates, uh, which I suspect a lot of you have watched, uh, explicitly covered all corners of the UK Isle. It was a really hyper-local drama, albeit with a national angle. It doesn't return as made outside of London for quota purposes. It was made in collaboration with a small independent producer. It doesn't return as an independent production for quota purposes. So... Quotas are blunt instruments, uh, and I, I'm I, I'm wary of a system that goes back to ring fencing 10, 20 different types of programming. Um, we've already heard about children's international broadcasting has already come up in this debate. Uh, that's suddenly a lot of your schedule. Uh, and as I've said before, the certainly from a commercial public service broadcaster perspective, there simply isn't surplus in the system to sort of deliver that, that sort of 
piece by piece commissioning. It's a lot of complexity in, in, in a business that is trying to simplify. Um, so I think we can be more optimistic than, than, than perhaps it feels about that broader delivery of religious discourse on, on British television. Uh, but I, I do echo calls for a sort of solutions-led discussion about if we want more, what exactly is it you want more of? What does that look like? How do we incentivize that and fund it? Um, and the, the final thing to pick up on this, this universal delivery point, absolutely central. And I think the next two years, we're going to see a big debate about the future of distributing content, not just about the content itself. Ofcom's got a review running. Um, that that core of people who uh, I think BT have estimated a million people could not afford broadband at any price, let alone a social tariff. There's another million people who can probably afford it but can't get the kit to work. They don't understand it. They're not comfortable with it for emails, let alone for watching your TV. But what no one has an answer to yet is how you fund two forms of distribution. It was really easy in the old world to just pump the signal out and everybody could receive it. On the internet, every individual hour of consumption adds cost on top of the existing infrastructure, which is getting more and more expensive and serving fewer people. That that the state needs to grip that topic and work out how it wants to fund distribution, because if the distribution isn't funded, it's just going to come out of content budgets, which are already under pressure. So that would be even more money out of TV programming to fund its distribution to people across the UK. I don't have an answer to that one yet, uh, but it's, it's, it's another hot topic that the media bill clearly doesn't address. Thank you. I want to bring in Professor Kim Not now, having spent 45 minutes or so discussing religious broadcasting. Um, Kim, I, I want to ask you whether you think we're asking the right question. You uh, wrote a book uh, which is called um, uh, Media Portrayals of Religion in the Secular Sacred. So when you were looking at religious broadcasting, what was your definition of religious broadcasting? And have we been discussing the right thing for the past 45 minutes? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, that, thank you very much, Ruth, and thanks to everybody else. It's an intriguing and, and really important discussion. I can't answer explicitly your question in the way you put it, Ruth, because I would have to say that our research was always broadcasting about religion, not religious broadcasting in that sense. And um Perhaps I should just say that I began my career back very, very long time ago uh, working on a project about media portrayals of religion. And then 25, 26 years later, we adopted the same methodology to see what had changed. And of course, uh, um, since we began, we have many more channels. Uh, we have many more news outlets, newspapers and so on. So one was the proliferation in media uh, sources, media outputs. And of course, even since we did the second project, which was in between 20, 2008 and 2010, uh, things have changed again. So we have a changing media landscape, but we also have a changing religious landscape. And so what would work as a definition of either religious broadcasting or broadcasting about religion? Uh, 25, 30, 40 years ago is, is not necessarily going to work today. So I suppose the first thing I would say would be remember that religion and spirituality and what I call the secular sacred, if you like, they are 
dynamic fields. You know, they are constantly changing and, and therefore re- issues of, of ethics, of uh, worship, of um, uh other forms of ritual practice, a belief, and so on, that's all changing as well. And so, you know, the, in a way, the providers, the media providers also have to reflect that kind of dynamism. Um, so what would I say about, uh, could I say, uh, what would I say about the definition of religious broadcasting? I would very much echo what Gareth has said most recently, in which I think he reflected what I would call broadcasting about religion. Um, uh, Really, when we did our research, what we could see was if we took our eye off formal definitions of religious broadcasting and we looked at broadcasting about religion more generally, we could see it everywhere across the schedule in every kind of programming. And on the one hand, we may say, well, that may trivialise religion or it doesn't give uh, an opportunity for an in-depth coverage of religion. But we have to remember that one of the purposes, I think, of broadcasting about religion, just like broadcasting about, say, other kinds of uh, diversity issues, is it's about representation, as well as about issues about understanding and literacy. So people want to see themselves represented. They want uh, their minority as well as majority interests represented. They want to see people like themselves. And so it's important that broadcasting about religion takes place in a whole, right across the schedule. And I recognise that that is extremely difficult to monitor and to um to uh to to de- define with a quota so are you saying that the way to safeguard broadcasting about religion is an individual thing it comes from people involved in the creative industries being religiously literate is that the key thing that should happen in order to Im- improve both the quality and the quantity of broadcasting about religion i mean that places a a heavy burden on uh, creative producers, and obviously, I'm. I, I th- that then raises a wider quest- question, which I think Nicholas mentioned about the about religious literacy in society more generally. So it would rely upon creative producers really to have that kind of literacy, or at least to have the researchers who could go and get that kind of information. And it hasn't I must say always been my experience that that has been the case. So uh, I can see that there is probably uh, a role for some kind, something more centralised than that. So I think it's really important that religion is re- religion and spirituality are represented right across the schedule. But I that doesn't mean I don't think there would be a role for some kind of monitoring of what's going on. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I confess, and you'll be able to tell. You know, I'm essentially a researcher about. Um, but uh, religion and media, not somebody who knows a great deal about the production side or the formalities of Ofcom or uh, the uh, obligations on the on the providers, the media providers themselves. Um, but I, I can see, so I, I suppose I can see a role. I can understand Nicholas's point about uh, the need for some kind of 
quota or measuring mechanism so that we can see what's actually changing, what's actually whether uh, whether coverage is being uh, whether that notion of flexibility also includes uh, religion. But I'm not sure what would be the best way to do that. Personally, I think um, reporting, self-reporting, there's a big role for that here. Because I think if you ask ITV or Channel 4 to give examples of their coverage of religion, they're perfectly able to do so. Gareth just did it for ITV. So I think uh, one of the ways we can uh, test the claim that religion is being covered is actually by asking the providers themselves. And I know that's not, uh, that's not a very formal mechanism, but there is, I think, room for that. Thank you, Kim. I just want to try to come to a couple of people who put things in the chat box. Uh, first of all, Alex Strangways Booth, known to many of us from your years of service at the BBC in uh, local and regional programming. Just Hi. your reflection on the discussion so far. Well, it's quite odd to be sitting here not being at BBC Local Radio because I sat in so many of these kind of panel discussions over the years, kind of, you know, and, and people who know me know that it would make me quite cross because I feel that um, people missed the boat somewhat on the big changes to local radio. And I think that they were on the cards for a long time, for the best part of two years. And I don't think that the religious establishment did anything to draw the public's attention to what was happening in local radio. Um, at the same time, I do think that those shows, regionalising the shows made commercial sense. You know, this is what we are talking about. You know, it. the idea was to have 13 kind of really good shows that were better resourced. So there is a chance that those, those 13 shows could be quite big hitters if they really are ambitious and do, you know, take on the issue of religion um, and faith and faith communities and have a good go at really trying to get to the bottom of what's happening across England in faith communities. But I don't think that there's an enormous appetite among the BBC management to do that. I think they would like religion to be light and fluffy, uh, 60 second sermons, you know, the vicar coming in and doing the paper review. So the impression I got, and I was very involved in drawing up the briefs for those new shows. I, I drew up the briefs for those new shows. But when it actually came down to it on the local stations, I could see that there wasn't an enormous appetite for actually doing a lot of stuff about faith and religion. And one editor even said to me, well, it depends what you mean by faith, is what they said. So I think, you know, it's it's I I could see it was an opportunity to have 13 really strong shows that showcase religion and dig deep into religion. But it might happen, it might not. I'm not there anymore. Um, I agree um, that quotas are problematic. I think that the BBC used local radio for a long time to, as a tick box exercise. So that whole 5,000 hours of 2,000 hours of local radio, I mean, it was it was problematic because those 39 shows were all broadcast at the same time. They were three-hour shows broadcast at the same time. I think it's disingenuous to, to try and say that there was thousands of hours of religious broadcasting because that wasn't the case. So I think 
Um, I think, you know, what the BBC needs to do is to be is to be ambitious and confident and realise that it can get a really strong core audience of people who are interested in religion. They don't need to dither about and make it religion light and fluffy. I think I think there's a lack of confidence and a lack of religious literacy across the board, really, that means that people are that, that those people who are religious or part of a religious community don't really have anywhere to go to get their content. So, you know. Thank you, Alex. Final word, I'm going to Rosie Dawson, um, also uh, worked at the BBC as well, for your re reflection on how news reflects religion, how important that is as we draw this uh, discussion to a close. Yeah, I mean, just I just put in the chat box that actually if there, if there was one area that I would be most concerned about it was it would be about the coverage of religion or not just not the coverage of religion but the coverage of stories which have a religious dimension which um the sort of general journalist just has to understand if they're going to serve the audience properly and i do come across you know i quite often shout it's usually at the radio actually because that's the main way i consume my news um that that those opportunities are sometimes missed um and um, and I'm watching the coverage of the of Modi opening the you know the new temple um, in Iota um, in, in that regard. Channel Four News did very well on that last night. But there was a there was an example on PM of, of two or three weeks ago where the presenter asked the correspondent in the Middle East why Temple Mount was such an important site um, to you know the communities around, and the reply was yes, it's a very important site. And it was just such a missed opportunity to talk about, you know, why it matters for Jews, why it matters for Muslims, um, you know. And um, I think unless we can get that, that, it's not even nuance. It's just basic, it's basic factual reporting. Um, unless we can get that in, into more of the news coverage, then I think other program makers, um, an audience who's then going to have asked questions and want a, a sort of deeper exploration of some of them, they're just not going to get the service that they deserve. Thank you. Thanks for that reflection, which I'm afraid draws this discussion to a close. Um, thank you all for joining and we'll be following the passage of the bill through the Commons and later the Lords, so we may regroup at some point. Thank you very much. The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk, where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter and it's hugely appreciated.